your child is K to third grade and is ready to go to Children's Church, uh, they can go out the back and Miss Summer will help take them down uh, to Miss Melody for Children's Church. All right, well, welcome to Living Hope Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. My name's Rondi Taylor. I am the pastor here. Uh, when you walk into our church lobby or when you pick up a t-shirt or anything with our uh, logo on it, there's always four words that greet you. And those four words are serve, share, strengthen, and send. And those four words are the core values of what we believe we are called to as a church and what we believe you are called to as a follower of Jesus. And these four words uh, dictate how we as a church plan, how we program, how we outreach, how we spend our resources. There are four words that affect every decision we make. And so as I, a couple months, or a month or so ago, I planned out our sermon series for the, the year. And I realized it's been almost four years since we last talked, last formally preached through our vision. And many, if not most of you, were not with us at that time. So over the next four weeks, we're going to talk through these core values, spending a week on each of them. So you probably figured it out, but today we are talking about serve or servanthood. And we believe that as a church, we should consistently serve one another, but it goes beyond that as we believe that we as a church should serve those outside our walls as well. We believe that one of the primary ways we influence our community for Jesus is by serving our community, by serving our neighbors and our friends. It's by loving those around us and valuing their needs, wants, and comforts above our own that we share Jesus. Over and over, the call for Christians in the New Testament is to love Jesus, to treasure Jesus above everything else, and then because of that love, to, to love, serve, and value others is greater than ourselves. So we believe this value is foundational to who we are as a church, but this value of servanthood isn't just for us when we are collectively gathered as a church, but if we desire to influence our community, this has to become a value of who we are as a church when we are dispersed from these walls. This has to become a value of who we are as followers of Jesus. If we want our neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, teams, rec fields to be influenced with the gospel, then we have to become followers of Jesus who serve others and live this out in our homes, families, and our daily lives. But we're not alone in this, and that's the good news. The greatest example we have of servanthood is the life of Jesus. He came to earth as a servant. He gave his life as the ultimate act of service, and he called his disciples and then us today to follow him in loving and serving others. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, if you want to head that direction. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. I think this story is awesome because it's, it's so just real world and real life. So we start in verse 17. It reads, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is himself, will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So the setting here is Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he's heading there with a purpose. He is headed to Jerusalem to give his life for the sins of the world. As Jesus journeys, he knows this is the last time he will enter Jerusalem. He knows his days on earth here are limited. He knows the pain he is about to endure, and yet he still goes. And that's a sermon in and of itself. But Jesus knows what is coming in Jerusalem, and yet he loves you so much, he still goes to give his life for you. And as he goes, he tells his disciples what's going to happen. This is how the third time he has told his disciples that he is going to die and he's going to rise again. 
This is an important moment. This is, this is when the music changes in the movie as things get serious. He is headed to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. He lets his friends on the news, and this is the response he gets, verse 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him for a favor. Now some context here. The sons of Zebedee are James and John, two of his disciples. And another interesting note is, is their mom's name is Salome, and Salome was Jesus' aunt. She was the sister of his mother Mary. So there's like some like small town family power dynamics going on right here. Jesus' aunt comes and makes a request on behalf of her boys. In Mark chapter 10, Mark also records this story, but in his account, it's the boys themselves that make the request. So this indicates to us, this isn't just a, a rogue mom making a request, but it's the ambitions of James and John as well, not just their mommy. Uh, but I love this story, and I love the Bible because it's so real. If you've, ever, if you've ever coached, like this is a daily occurrence, right? There's always some mommy or daddy or aunt or grandpa that is convinced that their son or daughter is a future first-round draft pick, and the only thing messing it up is their third-grade rec coach. And so they are sure that this third-grade rec coach is preventing them from greatness. Meanwhile, their, their child is chasing butterflies and doing cartwheels in the grass. It's the same thing. The stakes are just higher. Let's read on. Verse 20 again. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So the request of Aunt Salome is that her boys be given the two most important positions in the kingdom aside from Jesus. In their day, the one that sat to the right of the throne was second in charge, and the one that sat to the left was third in charge. Again, I think this is just so funny because, like, this happens every single day outside our middle school coach's office, right? Like Salome, everyone wants the best and the most for their kids, and they have this tendency of viewing their kids through these really strong rose-tinted glasses, like, everyone thinks that their child it deserves more, and, and being in a small town, it seems that everyone making the request is related somehow to somebody on our coaching staff. And so often, the, the requests are equally ridiculous. They say, I think my kid should get a chance to play quarterback. Meanwhile, their child can't learn the plays. Or, I, I think my child should play running back and score a touchdown. And we have to explain that that's great, but your child can't finish the warm-up lap. So, perhaps offensive line is a better spot for them. But this is the request Sloan is making, and it's more audacious than that, especially on the heels of Jesus telling them that he's about to die, to be mocked, to be beaten, and they come with this request. Verse 22, let's read on. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So we'll touch on this in a second. But the other ten are mad, not because of the disrespect that they had shown Jesus, but they're upset because they thought they were deserving of the more prestigious position in the kingdom. They're outraged at Salome's manipulation, at their leveraging of familial relationships, not how they treated Jesus, but they're mad that, that they might lose their spot in the kingdom. They're just as guilty. Verse 25, let's hear Jesus' response. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that, that Jesus came not to be served, but he came as a servant. That he came to give his life so that we could find forgiveness in him. God, and I pray that as we walk through this passage, Lord, that you would reveal those areas in our life where we act a lot more like, like James and John and Salome and the other disciples looking out for our own interests. God, we pray that you would reveal those areas to us, Lord, and that we would repent and that we would follow you in them. God, and that as we leave, Lord, that we would leave as your servants, ready and willing to serve and to love those around us, whatever it may take so that those around us might know the hope and life and love available in Jesus. God, would you help us just to, to see the forgiveness and, and to see your love for us, and that, that would drive us in gratitude to serve those around us. God, we love you. We thank you that you gave your life for us. Lord, in response, Lord, we, we pray that we would give our lives back to you. In your name we pray, amen. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to give his life for the sins of the world, for you, for me. He lets his disciples once again know what's about to happen, and then James, John, and Mommy speak up. And the request is to exalt James and John to the most powerful and prestigious positions in the kingdom outside of Jesus. Again, this is an audacious request, especially considering that Jesus just rebuked the disciples for this in Matthew 18. But they don't get it. And it doesn't seem the other disciples get it either. It says they become indignant with the brothers when they hear the request. And I don't imagine it's a righteous indignation, but instead a selfish one, because they too have ambitions of high-ranking positions in the kingdom. And they fear that these brothers are, are using their connections to usurp them. And so then what is Jesus' response to the conflict? He, he calls them all together and he shares with them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority of them. He says, not so with you. He says, to the world, power, prestige, posi positional authority are important, but that's not how it is with you. That's not how it is in the kingdom of God. Instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, just as Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the economy of Jesus, servanthood is valued over self-exaltation. It is valued over positional prestige. And in this story, we see the number one distraction and deterrent for us from living a life of servanthood is self-centeredness. And so our first point today is that servanthood is not self-centered. You cannot be self-centered and a servant who puts others first. It's just not possible. But we all battle this because self-centeredness is our natural disposition. We are all born looking out for ourselves, for our families, and for our own interests. It's who we are. It's our nature. Especially in times of trial, uh, times of uncertainty, times of weariness, times of difficulty. It is our nature to focus exclusively on me and my own. We look for the path of least resistance. We search out the known. We look for our own comfort. We look out for ourselves. I would imagine that's part of what's going on for James and jo John and Salome. This is part of their request. Jesus is telling them he's about to die. They, they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. It feels like time is fleeting, and so they effort to secure their future at the expense of others. We do the same. When life is hard, when we're hurt, when we're tired and worn out, we search out for what is best for us and those, those that we are close to. We lock in, we try to control everything we can, and we secure our future, our comfort, our ease. In times of stress, we stop thinking of others and trusting God, and we look out for ourselves. In the show The Office, there's this, this great scene that illustrates this. 
The opening is the opening, it's the monotony of a day in the office, and it's broken by the sound of fire alarms. So most of the employees, they just assume it's a drill, and they slowly make their way out of the building. But then out of nowhere, Michael Scott, the boss, comes running through, and he's pushing people out of the way so that he can ensure that he is able to exit the building safely. The security cameras follow him throughout the buildings. He races through the front doors. But chaos, uncertainty, trial hit, and so Michael immediately looks out for himself. It's our nature to take care of ourselves first. This is why we practice fire drills, so that it doesn't turn into mass chaos. Because our nature is to make sure we make it out, and in doing so, disregard the safety of others. We have to train ourselves to not just desire and ensure our safety, but we have to train ourselves and see and experience that an orderly exit assures not just our safety, but the safety of the whole and the safety of me. So our next point is that that we are self-centered by nature. We can't be servants and be self-centered, but it's our nature. And so if our call as a church and as Christians is to be servants, then we, we have to recognize and, and see that we are fighting against our sinful nature, which is self-centeredness. Stephen Kendrick, in his book, The Love There, writes this. He says, almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. He said, it's a trait that we hate in other people, but we justify in ourselves. That's so true, isn't it? Self-centeredness is our natural tendency, but it runs in direct opposition of our calling of being servants as followers of Jesus. That's what we see here with James and John and their mom and the other disciples. Jesus has called them to be servants, but they're still thinking in terms of the values of the world, which values self-exaltation and advancement over everything. And Jesus, through his life and through his words in verses 26 through 28, he's turning that paradigm of power on its head. He says to James and John and to us, he says, don't value the things of the world. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Just as I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life for others. Success in the kingdom of God is not determined by what you gain for yourself, but instead by what you give of yourself. Jesus says to be great, you must be a servant. I think we read this and we talk about this and it sounds crazy at first glance. Why would I want to be a servant? Jesus goes so far uh, as to say a slave. Why would I serve and value others before myself? And there's only one reason that we would live our lives as servants, and that is out of gratitude for a Savior who gave his life so that we could have life in him. We live our lives as servants because we are so grateful for the life that Jesus has given us. So that's our next point. Servanthood must be motivated by gratitude. So to break the pull of our natural desires, which is self-centeredness, we must be motivated by something greater. And that greater force is gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. It is gratitude that leads to action as we glorify God, serve others, and make him known. Jesus gave his life for us. And so the only plausible response to that is to give our lives back to him out of gratitude for what he's done. When we understand what Jesus did for us, then our overwhelming gratitude should cause us to give and live our lives back for him and his glory. And Jesus right here speaks to James and John. He speaks to us and he says a life devoted to Jesus looks like a life of service. And so the first question that we we have to wrestle with and we have to understand, we have to think about is do we, do you, do I, do we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Have you found forgiveness? Have you found eternal life in him? 
If the answer to that is no, then I, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to answer your questions about what that means to follow him after service. But if you have, and the answer for you is yes, do, do you grasp the magnitude of the gospel in your life? Do you grasp that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you went from a sinner condemned to a righteous son or daughter of the king? You went from dead to alive, from blind to sight. And that's not because of anything you did, but all because of what Jesus did for you. Without Jesus, the Bible is clear that that without him, we would spend eternity in hell separated from God. The Bible says there's no way we can earn our way out on our own. The gospel is we didn't earn it. Jesus did. Do you grasp the magnitude of that transaction, the, the reality of your new life in him? Don't take the credit. It's not yours to take, but recognize the life that Jesus has given to you and be grateful. Say thank you. And when you grasp that, it ought to change the way you live your life. In Romans 12, 1, Paul kind of sums this up. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, God's mercy and what Jesus has done, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Paul says it's in view of or because of the mercy of God that God has shown us that we are called to live as living sacrifice, to live lives devoted to God. Out of gratitude for his mercy, for his love, for his sacrifice, we give our lives back to him. Gratitude for Jesus and what he's done overwhelms our self-centeredness and it leads to a life of servanthood. That's why serve is the, the first of our values here. A life of servanthood is at the foundation of what every believer's life ought to look like. It's a natural response to our new life in Christ. It's what Jesus calls his followers to in this passage. And it provides us the credibility and opportunities to share, to grow, and to be sent. So a grateful heart is critical to a life of servanthood. But you may be asking, well, what does servanthood look like? And that's our next point, that servanthood is best modeled in the life of Jesus. We see that here. The reason that servanthood is possible is because of Jesus. In him alone can the motivation of, of self be broken and we're able to focus on others. And it's in him that we see the model of what servanthood looks like. Jesus was a son of God. He, he deserved to be praised. He deserved to be worshipped. He deserved to be served during his life here on earth. But instead he says he came to serve and to give of his life for others. Jesus turns again this paradigm of power upside down. When he says whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Then we see how he lives it out. He says, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This isn't just like a theory that Jesus talks about, but he models it in his life. We are called to serve and give our lives away in service because that's exactly what Jesus did. We serve because Jesus, the Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We serve and love others because that's exactly how our Savior lived. We also see this in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is how Paul calls on us as Christians to live. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in these two va- passages, we, we see three just foundational truths of what it looks like to live our lives as servants. First, we see that servanthood is, is evidence of faith in Jesus. If we are followers of Jesus, then we will serve others. Jesus, that the Son of God, is the model, and if he is willing to humble himself to a life Uh, to a life and death of servanthood, then we should be willing to live in a similar manner. Our servanthood is evidence, a testimony of the life change we have experienced in Jesus. The second thing we see in these two passages and in Jesus' life is that we aren't called just to be servants to fellow Christians. Instead, the second thing we see is that a life of servanthood is that we are called to serve all people. Oftentimes we think of of service and servanthood and we think that we could love and we could serve those that look like us. Those that believe like us. Those that are nice to us. Those that are part of our group. And we we should love and serve those people, but it can't stop there. Because what we see in Jesus' life is that he gave his life not for quote-unquote good people or even the people who were interested in him, but he came and he gave his life for sinners. He came and gave his life for enemies that were far from him. He gave his life for the very men and women that were chanting crucify. That's really good news because because before Jesus saved us, we were the sinners. We were the enemies. We were the men and women whose sin nailed him to the cross. Jesus didn't wait for the world to get their lives together. He came to give his life so that they could be forgiven. And so we as a church, we don't wait for people to show up to love them and serve them. We have to be a church that take the love and hope of Jesus to the the community, to the world, where they are, far from God in the dark world. The gospel says we are all sinners, we are all enemies of Jesus, and that there is nothing special about, about us apart from Jesus and the forgiveness and life he has given us. We just sang it, but one of my, my favorite hymns is how deep the Father's love for us. I love this line in that hymn that we sang that says, Behold the man upon a cross. My sin was upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You see, apart from Christ, I am a sinner. I'm a blasphemer. I'm a mocker. It was my sin that he died for. I was an enemy of Christ in my sin before he died and redeemed me. You and I, we're not special. We did nothing to earn God's favor. We didn't meet him in the middle. The gospel, the Bible says Jesus paid it all. It was all Jesus that made the way. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't just die for the righteous. But he died for the enemy, for the sinner. He died for me. Jesus gave his life for all people, and we are called to do the same. Nobody lived this out better than Paul. Paul in the New Testament was so overwhelmed with gratitude for the life that he had in Jesus that he gave his life so that others far from Jesus might know him. I love Philippians 3.18. Paul says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, there are many that live as enemies of the cross of Christ. When Paul looked at those who lived as enemies of Jesus all around him, he wasn't angry, but he was filled with compassion to the point of tears. As you look at those in our community, in our world, that are far from Jesus, that that live differently than us, do we grieve for those that don't know Jesus? 
Are you filled with compassion and tears that lead you to action? When you look around our community and around the world, when you look upon those that live as enemies of Jesus, is your heart filled with compassion for them? Do you grieve for them? Do you pray for them? Do you serve them? Do you see them where they are and do you love them unconditionally? Or do you say, well, as soon as they clean up their act, as soon as they figure out their lives, as soon as they become more like me, then I'll love them, then I'll serve them. You say, well, it's their fault. They can deal with the consequences of their sin, of their dumb choices. But the reality is we are just like them except for the grace of God. When we realize that, when we realize that, that we were the enemies far from Christ without Jesus, it should lead us to love and serve others and try to draw them to him as well. Do you see the people in your neighborhood as annoying neighbors or as people in desperate need of hope? Are we willing to not give up on those around us, to stick with them, to continue to love them until they know Jesus? Because that's the pattern of Jesus. That's the, the pattern that Paul calls us to his followers. The reality is we so easily take offense to those that live opposed to Jesus, but that's not our job. We rant and rave about the evils of society and our world, but we rarely do the things that lead people to Jesus that change the world. Our communities will not change until they know Jesus. What we see in the Bible and the New Testament is that often the open door to Jesus is selfless service. Jesus is Paul, and Paul's example is to have compassion on those around us who do not know Jesus because their citizenship is here on earth. Our job is to serve them and love them so that they might know the hope and life available in him. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And when he says, I become all things so that all people might know Jesus, this doesn't mean that we, we live in sin so they might know Jesus. But what it means is that we love people, we serve people where they are, as they are, so that they might know Jesus. We don't require people to live by our beliefs, our laws, before we love and serve them. But instead, we, like Paul, love them where they are for the sake of the gospel. Remember, Jesus gave his life for us when we were sinners, when we were enemies to him. And because of that, with tears in our eyes, with compassion in our hearts, we can serve and give our lives for those that are far from him as well. Servanthood allows us, it frees us to see past the sin and to see the person that desperately needs the hope, love, and forgiveness of Jesus. And it's genuine servanthood. It's genuine love that affords us the opportunity, the platform to share the hope of Jesus with our friends, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our family members. That's why Paul says, I give up of all of my preferences. He says, I give up my life, my likes, so that as many as possible might be saved and know the hope and love of Jesus. Think about your life for a minute. How might God be leading you to serve and love others? For some of us, we, we, we need to get out. We need to be around some lost people in our lives. You've surrounded yourself with people who are saved, who think and act and look just like you. You don't even have relationships with those that are far from Jesus. That likely wasn't intentional. Maybe you started loving the lost, but you got hurt or tired or, or you fell into temptation and you're just done. Don't give up. 
Let God open your eyes to the lost around you and take steps to begin serving them. Ask God to show you the needs in our community, the needs in your neighborhood, and then take that opportunity and serve. Jesus says, look up, the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. We have to be intentionally looking for ways to serve, for opportunities, asking God for them, and asking God to, like Paul, break our hearts, to fill our our hearts with compassion and tears for those around us. So that's something you need to, you need to develop a burden for the lost around you. And some of us fall into this camp, but, but many of us, we are surrounded by lost people every day. And the thing that I love most about this call to serve and to love others is we don't have to add another to-do item to our list for the week. But instead, this call to serve others gives every day of our life intentionality and a gospel purpose. You can do this at work. You can do this at the ball field. You can do this uh, at, the, at the party. You can do this in your neighborhood. For most of us, God has placed people far from him around us every day. And so the call is to intentionally love and serve them right where we are. You can do this at your job. You can do this in your day-to-day life. And so if this is you, I would encourage you to pray and ask God to show you ways you can serve others. And then when he reveals a way to serve, do it. Serve. Maybe this mean, means taking a sick neighbor, uh, just a, a, some groceries or food. Maybe this means picking up the break room that nobody else will do. Maybe this means watching a neighbor's kids so they can have a break. Maybe it means picking up the job at work that no one wants, but it needs to get done. I think right now we have a unique and powerful opportunity to serve and love those around us as we walk through this COVID pandemic. And regardless of your political affiliation or views on COVID, masks, or vaccines, my challenge to you would be to step back from social media, to step back from talking points, to step back from political platitudes and pray about do my views, do my words, and do my actions right now honor God and serve God. And love my neighbor and my community. Are my words, my actions, my social media posts, are they pointing people to Jesus? Are they serving and loving others? Or are they dividing and driving people to politics as opposed to Jesus? I I don't know what the answers are. I don't know which way we should side on everything. But I would just challenge you to personally pray and think about, are you serving and loving your neighbor? Or are you pushing some other agenda? As you respond, I would challenge you to not base your decisions on your political views or your friends' opinions or blogs, but instead base your views, base what you're saying, what you're talking about, base them on the Bible, base them on what can I personally do that will model love and service and give the most people possible an opportunity to hear of the love of Jesus. Base your views not on what others are saying, not on what is best for me, but what is best for others so they might hear the hope of Jesus. And that leads directly to the final thing we see about servanthood from these passages. And that is that servanthood is always sacrificial. Servanthood cost Jesus his life. It cost him everything. Consequently, we can know that servanthood is going to cost us as well. Jesus tells his disciples of the pending death in verses 17 through 19. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life in servanthood for those that are far from me, that are my enemies. 
But not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be humiliated in death, death on a cross. The reality is when we serve others, when we serve others as Jesus served, it's rarely going to be glamorous. It's rarely going to receive front page attention. We're rarely going to receive praise for it. But instead, serving others is going to be sacrificial and it's going to cost. Service is going to cost us our preferences and our desires. It's going to cost us our wants and our times. It often costs us socially and financially. It often costs us our prestige. It humbles us and makes us more like Jesus. And it is the vessel that Jesus uses to draw and transform lives in him. Serving lost people, serving those around us that are far from Jesus will at times be painful. It will be exhausting. It will be unappreciated. People are still going to reject you and hurt you. It will leave you drained. When you, when you experience that, remember that Jesus, as he served, was mocked. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was killed by the people he gave his life for. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't give up when the same happens to us. The reality is our reward is not here and we shouldn't expect it here. The reward of service is that someday in heaven we will see people, some of those that we served, spending an eternity in heaven with God because of our service. We sacrifice so that some might know Him. And so as a church, it is our desire to always be a church that serves, that loves, that values our community. We want to be a church that, that prioritizes the comforts and needs of others above our own comforts and needs. And as we said earlier, the true impact of this will be felt when we as families and individuals leave here each week. And we intentionally love and serve those that God brings into our life. When I think about this subject, I think of, of so many of you that are in helping industries or in their job. And you are, you are doing this. You are serving others. Lives have been changed because you have served others. Whenever I think of this subject, though, I especially think of those that, that are in education. In our church, we have the most amazing collection of teachers and admins and aides and the coaches that I have ever been around. And you guys already do such an amazing job of serving and prioritizing loving students. And so my challenge to you today specifically is, is that you have an opportunity you have an opportunity as a follower of Jesus to love, serve, and model a life for your servants that looks radically different than what they see at their homes. Every day, most of the families in our community send their kids through your doors to be molded by your leadership. And so my encouragement to you is to keep serving. Keep loving. Keep doing what you're doing because what you do is making an impact on the lost and the vulnerable in our community. And every time you love and encourage a child that is difficult or is having a hard time, you are pointing them to a hope beyond themselves. You guys are doing an amazing job. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired of doing good. I know this has been the longest year and a half, two years of your lives. Keep it up. God has placed you and he has given you influence. Continue to live intentionally for him and his glory. But that's the same reminder for all of you, no matter your job status or your occupation. There are people in your workplace, there are people that you serve, that you work alongside, that desperately need someone to love them, to show them something greater than this world, to serve them and to point them to Jesus. Keep doing it. 
What you do matters. How you live matters. How you love those around you matters. Find little ways each day to serve and to point people to Jesus. Live a life of servanthood. I mean, this past year has been, quite frankly, it's been miserable. It's been exhausting. Don't give up. He saved you for a purpose. He's put you where you are for a purpose. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep pointing people to Jesus. So as we respond to this passage and this this topic of servanthood, again, the first question we have to ask is, do you know Jesus, your Lord and Savior? Have you experienced his forgiveness in your life? Have you experienced the, the promise of an eternity with him in heaven? Has he called you son or daughter? If you're not sure about that, you've got to settle that today. All this sermon rests on that. And you can do that in your seat. You can say, Jesus, I, I know you who you said you are. I know you were the son of God. I know you came and lived a sinless life and died for my sins. I want to trust you. I want to follow you the rest of my life. The Bible says if you say that, if you follow him with your heart, you will be forgiven. Or if you have questions or want to know more about what that means, please come and talk to me. It would be my joy to share with you. And if you're here today and you say yes to that question, I know I have found my life in him. Would you just reflect this morning on his love and his sacrifice in your life? Would you fill your heart with gratitude for what he's done for you? Would you let him reorient your life around him and his purposes? And would you begin to love and serve others? And then real practically, who, who is God calling you to serve this week? Is it someone in your neighborhood? Is it someone in your work? Someone in your classroom? Who can you serve and love this week? If you can't think of somebody, then would you start praying that God would send someone to your life that you can love and serve and point to Jesus? Then lastly, the last thing is, I, I just said it earlier, but, but it's been a long two years. Be encouraged today. God has put you where you are for a reason and for a purpose, and that is to love and serve others and point them to Jesus. Be encouraged. You are where he wants you to be. Don't grow tired of doing good. He sends you out this week for his mission of loving and serving others. Be encouraged by that. So I'm going to pray for us. As I do, the worship team will come and they'll lead us. In a final song. Dear Lord, we thank you that we have life in you. That we have purpose in you. That we have a calling in you. That we are forgiven in you. God, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that today might be the day that they surrender their lives and they experience life in you. That they experience forgiveness in you. And God, for many of us here that have experienced that, Lord, would you just open our eyes to, to the reality of who we were before you and who we are now. And in that, would you just overwhelm us with gratitude for who you are? God, did you help us to, to see the purpose you've given us? God, did you help us to, to, to get over all the things that drive us crazy about this world, all the people around us? God, would you help us to see those around us the way you see them? That you would fill our hearts with compassion and tears. That you would grieve us over the state of, the, of our world. You would grieve us for the, the state of so many of us that are far from you. God, and in that, Lord, that you would help us to be people that, that, that view our jobs, that view our recreation, that view our neighborhoods as places of intentionality. 
and that we would intentionally see and love and serve those around us, and that we would point people and share with people the hope we have in you, so that as many as possible, as Paul says, so that as many as possible might experience that same love, that same joy, that same forgiveness that you offered us. That many someday from our community, from our workplaces, might spend eternity in heaven because we took the initiative of loving and serving and sharing the hope of Jesus with them. God, would you open our eyes just to the intentionality that our work, that our recreation has, that we would see that you have placed us where we are for a purpose, and that we would take full advantage of that and love and serve others. God, we thank you for the life we have in you. We love you and we praise you and it's your name we pray. Amen.